morning. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. We look at just two verses today, verses 16 and 17, which we had planned to preach last week as part of the service, but we it would be better to divide this passage into two because there's so much in it and be able to focus more on sort of the individual elements. So Colossians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. When you read Scripture... There's two ways to read it. There's reading big portions and reading small portions. And you find new things doing both ways. When you read big portions, you're like, oh, there's a pattern here. There's a flow. And when you read small portions, you're like, wow, there's so much in the details. So our preaching tries to reflect that, where we preach sometimes big portions, sometimes small portions. And then the goal is that you would reflect that in your own studies. So what happens in the pulpit is a model and a guide for you in your own studies. So don't feel like it's the preacher's job to study the Bible and my job to listen. Well, it's your job to learn so that you can study the Bible yourself. So in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16 it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. The church and Christianity is inherently a spiritual thing. Everyone knows that. Even people who don't believe in Christianity understand that we are a spiritual people, that we strive for spiritual gains. So the question is, how do you grow spiritually? We should recognize that Christianity doesn't really bring a lot of money or prestige or power. So it's this sort of inward spiritual growth that we're looking for. Well, how does it happen? One thing to say, I want to grow spiritually. I want to be a spiritual person. I want to strengthen the spirit. How? What does it mean to grow spiritually? See, in our day, it's like, well, I'm I'm spiritual but not religious. Okay, maybe I am too. What does it mean? I'm a spiritual person. What does that mean? You're Hindu. That means you don't go to church, but you still think God exists. That means you think that everyone's connected through their spirit. What, what do you mean by spiritual? So when the church says we want to grow spiritually, what does that mean? Vagueness seems to attach itself to spirituality. As if the more vague you are, the more spiritual you are. Like, well, I'm just spiritual. That doesn't make you more spiritual because no one knows what you're talking about. So what does it mean to be spiritual? What does it mean to grow spiritually? And then what's the goal of spiritual growth? What's the point? I feel for a lot of people in America, some of us included, it makes you seem more interesting. You're deeper. You're a spiritual person. You're not sort of consumed by this outward, you have something deep inside of you. Is that it? Just so that we can seem to be sort of more than the world? Spiritual growth has to mean more than just sort of a feeling, a status symbol, a sort of otherworldliness that you see in the spiritual people, they just kind of float through the world. Is that what we're talking about? The Bible 
covers both spectrums of this life. It covers things that are eternal and universal and hidden and mysterious. And then it says, here's what you should do on Sunday. It doesn't leave you wondering. It doesn't leave you sort of in this sort of vague, mystical world. It says, here's some practical things. So what we're going to look at today is the big things, sort of the divine cosmic things, all the way down to what you should do on a regular basis. So we see in this passage, we see the reign of Christ. That's the big picture. We see the word of Christ. That's the connection. And then finally, the way of Christ. These are the answers for how you grow spiritually, what it means to be spiritual, what's the point of being spiritual, the reign of Christ, the word of Christ, and the way of Christ. So first of all, look at verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's a big statement. doesn't leave anything out, does it? Every single word you utter, every single action you do, is under Christ's kingship. The kingship of Christ knows no bounds. He's not a public king and not a private king. He's a king. He's the Lord. So you see the word Lord. That's a big word. Sometimes we don't use that word very much. But it's bigger than a king. So Jesus is the king. He's the Lord. He's the ruler for two reasons. By his own nature and by his work. He does it. He, he covers both angles. He says, I'm the king because I should be. Because of who I am. So look back in, in Colossians. Colossians talks about this. And verse chapter 1, verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. Should God be king? Well, that's what it means to be God. So if Christ is God, then he should be king. Chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, it says, For in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Every bit of God is in Christ. And you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Why should Christ get to tell us what to do with every thought and deed? Because of who he is. We struggle with kingship and with lordship because we always look at people. And we recognize people don't deserve to be in charge. Even if they are, they don't deserve it. Because they're corrupt and they're fallen. And sometimes we project that onto Jesus. And this idea of someone who can dictate every thought and action makes us cringe. Work the other way. Look at Jesus first, see who he is, and then of course he dictates everything. If he is the fullness of God in flesh, not to let him dictate your thoughts means to reject God himself. God means creator, ruler, sustainer. Christ is God, therefore he is king. Though Christ could have settled there and said, because of who I am, you should obey me, he doesn't. He says, I'm going to do things that prove, that show, that establish my kingdom. So in chapter 1 again, he is the image of the invisible God, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Why should we obey Christ? Because he made everything happen. He created it, and he holds it together. By his work and by his actions, he has proved that he should be worshipped. But then in chapter 2, 
in verse 14, Jesus having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. You see, God said, Satan, evil powers, you should obey me. And Satan was like, nah, I don't care. And God's like, okay, we're going to prove that you should obey me. I'm going to come down there myself, and I'm going to get my hands dirty, and in front of everybody, I'm going to beat you. To show everybody that it's not just because I should, but because I can. So when Christ says, now you obey me, we see why. Because of his nature, and because he came down and he said, if you don't obey me, I'm going to publicly defeat you. And there you have the sides. There's Christ's side, and there's the side that's against Christ. The deception of Satan makes you think that you can go up against Christ and win. That you can decide what you do. But Satan himself was defeated. He sort of got beat, slunk back, and started telling everybody that he was the winner. And sometimes we believe it. Not directly, we don't say we believe Satan, but we believe like, well, every word, every thought, that seems a little restrictive. But that's saying Christ is not who he says he is. But more than that, as a Christian, we have acknowledged, vowed ourselves to that identity. Look what he says in uh, chapter 2 again, verse 12. In him you were circumcised, buried with him in baptism. Buried with him in baptism. Matthew chapter 28, it goes in more detail. It says, to become a Christian, and Jesus came and spoke to them saying, here's what it looks like to be in the kingdom of God. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. That's what we just talked about. Who is Jesus? He has all authority. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And what does a disciple look like? Baptizing them. Baptism is the symbol of being under Christ's rule. But look what you're baptized into. Into the church? Not directly. Into faith? Not directly. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptism is when you take on Christ's name. Hence, Christian. Who are Christians? Those who have assumed Christ's name. So you make a disciple, you follow Christ, you say, I believe Christ, I want to be under his rule. That's the first step. Only those who do that can be in Christ's kingdom. And then we symbolize it by saying, I want to be baptized, publicly identified in the name of Christ. So we assume Christ's identity. Why? Because of who he is. Don't you want to be identified with Christ? Not Satan? Identified with the one who won, not the one who lost. Identified with the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of earth. So baptism is us being baptized into the name, taking on the identity of him who is above all, which is a privilege in itself. So Paul says, whatever you do, do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, which you yourselves as the church have baptized yourselves into. He constantly reminds them, remember what you did. Remember what you symbolized. Remember what you promised. Remember who you identified with. Now live it out. If you're baptized into the name of Jesus, then act like it. 
If you took on Christ's name, then live like you're under Christ's name. It's not just, well, this is just theoretical stuff. No, it's if you took on someone's identity, act like it. If you're going to be identified with Christ, then behave like Christ. Evaluate everything in the name of Christ. You see, Christ wants total reign. He doesn't just say, well, I'll take this part and you can have the rest. He wants everything in word or deed. Nothing, no casual conversation, no Facebook post, no action that no one saw. Nothing gets out of his reign. What does it mean? Do all in the name of the Lord. Let's look at this for a minute. When you do something in the name of Jesus, you're saying the reason I'm doing this is because of Jesus. So what Christ is calling us to do, he said, because you identify with Christ, before you say or do anything, think, how is this what Christ did? The reason I'm doing this is because I'm a Christian. The reason I'm saying these words is because of Jesus. That, that's a big deal, isn't it? None of us are really doing that, are we? Every word, every thought saying, because of what Christ has done, because of who I'm identified with, now I'm going to say these next words. That's a high calling, isn't it? The next action I'm going to take is based on my identity as a Christian. Most of the time, we don't even think about it. You see, Christianity calls us to be mindful of the details. So much of our life is autopilot. When you think, I don't even know why I did that. You know, maybe you're trying to think now, do I do things in Christ's name? I don't know. I don't know why I do things. I don't know why I say things. I didn't, I just do them. I just say them. It just comes out. That's human nature. Autopilot. And autopilot rarely works in your own benefit. It's usually controlled by the sin, the sin in your flesh. So what Christ is saying is start living a life that carefully evaluates your actions and your words. Be mindful of the details. And those details should be based on Christ. Now that takes a lot of practice. That takes a lot of work. Discipleship is about following Christ. Slowly, step by step, every word, every deed is brought under Christ. And it takes the rest of your life. Every step of your life is bringing one more thing under Christ. Being, a, being attentive to one more way of speaking. One more action. This is what training is, discipleship, learning, growing in Christ. Following Christ is taking, paying attention to the details. Secondly, you don't just, the reason, so, so your actions were should be based on Christ, but they should also reflect Christ. When someone says, I come in the name of, you expect their words to reflect who they came in the name of. They're saying, I'm coming in the name of, so if you have kids, if you ever told your kids, go tell your brother to come here. You expect them to go into the next room and say, Dad said, come here. Now, if they just went and they said, come here, you don't expect that child to, be, to do anything their brother said. But when they said, but Dad said, come here, they're coming in the name of the Father. And if they don't obey the child, and I have to get up and go get them myself, I'm going to say, you knew I wanted you to come in here because they came in my name. They were reflecting my authority. So when God says... Do in the name of Christ, you're reflecting Jesus. You took on his name. Now you reflect him. So your actions and your words 
should look like Jesus' actions and words. You come in the name of Christ, reflect Christ. And what does that look like? Well, look back in verse 12. As the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. Is that what you sound like? Is that what your words sound like? Kind, compassionate, forgiving, long-suffering, meek. If they don't, you don't sound like Jesus. You're not reflecting Christ. If you're not reflecting Christ, you're reflecting something else. So coming in the name means sounding like Jesus. But it's also how we behave together. Verse 14, but above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. If you reflect Christ, you'll love people. If you don't love people, you don't reflect Christ. Let the word uh, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Are you a peacemaker? Do things get more peaceful when you're around? Does your behavior draw like-minded people together? Or do you cause problems? You see, Christ brought peace. And those who come in Christ's name should also bring peace. Unity. The longer people are around you, they should either be drawn to Christ or confronted with Christ. But so often, they're confronted with us. We are the problem. The longer they're around, they're like, I'd love to follow Jesus, but you get on my nerves. You see, when Jesus drove people away, it was because they rejected the truth. It was because they rejected him. Not because of his disciples. Often, Jesus would say, my disciples, don't worry about them right now. Look at me. When the woman came to Jesus and she broke some ointment and was, was anointing his feet, like she should have, worshiping Christ, one of his own followers, a Christian, said, she's wrong, stop doing that. And Jesus said to her, don't listen to my disciples, listen to me. That disciple was not speaking in the name of Jesus. He was creating division, not peace. Now let's look at us. Do people see our behavior and our words and say, that Jesus is amazing? Or do they look at our actions and our words and say, those Christians, I can't deal with that. The lordship of Christ means taking account for your own behavior and saying, do I look like Jesus? Do I reflect it? You see, what happens is we take on the name of idols and we reflect those idols. We start worshiping false gods and we start acting like false gods. Now, what's that look like in our life? Uh, does anybody watch the news? Do you notice that politics are not uniting, are not peaceful, are not kind? The more you immerse yourself into politics, the less you'll look like Jesus. The more you reflect politics, the less you'll reflect Jesus. And how do I know? I'm on Facebook. You know Facebook is open to everybody, right? Like everyone can see your post. I'm around people. You're around people. You see each other. Politics are brought in and suddenly the tone changes. It's not kind. It's not compassionate. It's not merciful. It's divisive. 
Why? Because you've stopped taking the name of Jesus and now you've taken the name of a Democrat or a Republican. Or you're better than everybody and you're a libertarian. Right? Libertarians are the worst. Or you're really, and you're just, you don't have any party. You're an independent. You're so much better than every single other person in the world that you have no party. <laughs> the more someone gets involved in politics, the less of a Christian they act. Now, I'm not talking about being involved. I'm talking about being immersed. The proof's in the pudding. You focus on Jesus, you look like Jesus. You focus on politics, you look like politics. Now that can be applied all across the board. Whatever you focus on, you'll look like. You focus on people, you'll look like people. And people are flawed. And whatever the flaw is that that person has, you'll start manifesting it. Whatever flaw the system has, you'll manifest it. So what he's saying is, look at Jesus and reflect Jesus. And how do we know? Kindness, compassion, love, unity, peace. If you're not a Christian, this is what you're doing. You've taken on the name of an idol, and you're trusting that idol to take you to peace. What does it mean to be a Christian? It's saying, everything else will fail me. Everything else is against God. I'm against God. God save me. I have messed everything up, and I'm following people who've messed everything up. I don't know what to do. Jesus, save me. That's it. To become a Christian, you just give up on everything and turn to Christ. You say, I'm done. I don't know the answers. I don't know what to do. I don't know who can trust. But Jesus, I can trust you. And so I put everything on Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's as simple as that. You turn from everything, and you turn to Christ. And to follow Christ is the same thing. You turn from everything, and you follow Christ. And it's a life of following Christ. He closes here, and giving thanks to God, the Father, through him. Thankfulness is a constant recalibration that everything good comes from God. Therefore, look at God. Constantly, every time you thank God, Every time you thank Jesus, you're saying, I'm stop looking at the world and now I'm looking at Jesus. Amen. It's an automatic, by just being thankful, you're turning away from the world to God. In fact, the world is recognized by their selfishness. The Bible says that you can see hateful people because of their unthankful. I'm like, unthankful doesn't seem that bad. It's ultimately a rejection of God himself. Amen. So when we are thankful, we simply just Keep on keeping ourselves in check by saying, I got nothing, Jesus has everything. And I just want to remember that. I just want to remind myself of that. And I just want to tell God that he's great and I'm not. And our service does this. We have a time of thanksgiving, a song of thanksgiving, just to remind ourselves how great God is. Now, that's all big picture, sort of the kingship of God, God ruling over us. But how do we know what God wants? What gets Christ in heaven to us. Well, it's what we've been looking at right here. How do you know how Christ acts? Because you read his word. So let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Christ's rule is mediated through the Bible. Christ's rule is not mediated through the church. It's not mediated through the pastor. It doesn't come to you through the pastor or the church. It comes to you through the word. 
So let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You want to know what Jesus wants? Read his word. That's, that's the central part of Christianity is how do we know God? How do we know what spirituality is? Let the word of God, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now notice what it says here. We've heard, we often say the word of God. Why does he say the word of Christ here? Very rare. I believe it's the only place in the whole Bible that says word of Christ. Why not word of God? Because it's drawing you to, it's not just God's words. It's focused on something. Who is the Christ? Who is the Messiah, as it's translated in Hebrew? It's he who came to earth to do something. Anointed. Christ means anointed one. The word of the anointed one. Anointed to do what? Save us. Die for us. You see, if you don't know the gospel, you don't know the Bible. You can read the Bible. You can read every word of it. You can go through it all day. But if you don't know the gospel, you miss the whole point. That's what the Pharisees did. They knew everything except what was important. They knew all the rules, but they didn't know the point. They knew the word of God, but they didn't know the word of Christ. So when we come to the Bible, we come to the word of the man who came to die for us and save us. What does spirituality mean? You look at Christ. You look at salvation. The gospel is focused. And so we should be focused on the gospel. And everything in the Bible, everything in the word, draws us to the gospel. Christ comes to us. The Messiah comes down to us. The word should take up residence, dwell in you, take, live inside of you, but not just live there, fill all the space. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It just fills up and it fills up and it's overflowing. So often we let other things dwell in us richly and it flows out of us. So what does it look like to fill up with the word of God? You read it, you memorize it, you sing it, you pray it, you see it, you fill up with it. It dwells in you richly. Notice what it says here, it doesn't dwell in your life, it dwells in you, in your heart. God wants your heart. See, a lot of us are like, okay, I'll do whatever God says. No, that's the result. The goal here is that Christ comes into your heart and has your heart. If Christ has your heart, guess what you're going to want to do? You're going to want to do whatever he wants to do. But you can have a heart that's far from God and still do what he says. You can still obey the commands and not love God. But if you love God, you'll obey the commands. So what the call here is let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. And then you'll let him be king. But if you try to start with works, you'll never get to the heart. But if you start with the heart, the works will come out. And so what we do is we focus on the heart. We preach the gospel to the heart. We preach love, not rules. Rules are just things to do. Love is a whole life focused on God. So the word of Christ that calls us to Christ, that mediates Christ to us, is central to the church. We preach it from the pulpit. Our songs are built around it. Our prayers are from it. Everything is built around the word because it conditions us to Christ. It conditions us. Christosom, who's a 4th century um, Greek church father said, for whatsoever soil the plant stands in, such is the fruit it bears. If in a sandy or salty soil, 
of like nature is its fruit. If in a sweet and rich one, it is again similar. So the matter of instruction is a sort of a fountain. You plant a church and a personality, you get a personality. You plant a church and a set of rules, and you get legalists. You plant a church on a style, and you get tribalism. But you plant a church in the word, and you get Christ. You plant a church in the gospel, and you get the gospel. What are you planting your kids in right now? Netflix? Secular music? What you put in is what you get out. What you plant them in is what you get them out of them. So what the Bible is saying, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and you'll get out the word of Christ. You, put the, you, you live in the gospel, and it comes out. And finally, the most practical step, what's the way of conditioning? How do we sort of do this sort of thing? What's the way of Christ? He tells you right here. Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. The practical means of growing spiritually. Like all this theory is great. Great, I want to worship God, and I want to have a heart that's focused on God, and I want to be centered on the Word. How? Join a church. This is church membership. Like, where's church membership in the Bible? It's right here in this passage. Teaching one another. When you join a church, you're saying to that church, I'm here to help, and you're here to help me. It's not a theory anymore. It's not just, well, we're going to love everybody, we're going to teach everybody. No, it's these people, the one another. See, when Paul wrote this to the Colossians, he didn't write it to the Christian world. He wrote to a group of people. He said, the one another's that you see, mutual teaching. You as an individual church member have a responsibility to teach other people in this church. Does that feel overwhelming? God said it. You personally have an individual responsibility to teach other people. Teaching one another. That's maybe intimidating, but dwell in the word and it'll come out of you. You don't have to be deep or sophisticated or educated. You just have to know Jesus. And then you get another member of the church and you tell them about Jesus. And maybe all you know about Jesus is that he died for you. Great. Find another person in this church and tell them all you know. But if you're not doing that, you're cutting yourself off from the means of growth. You cannot grow if you don't get face-to-face -face with another Christian in this church and share Christ. Teaching one another. Not the pastor teaching everybody, or the elders teaching the group, or the teacher teaching the class. Teaching one another. Christ saved you. The Holy Spirit lives in you. And now you're going to share that. This is why we're a Baptist church, because the congregational government gives everybody sort of the same standing. But not just that, teaching and admonishing one another. When was the last time you were accountable to another Christian in this church and they corrected you? When was the last time you were corrected by another Christian? You see, teaching's great. I'll learn all the time, but you're going to say correction now? That I personally did something wrong? When was the last time one of you said to me that I did something wrong? Am I exempt from this passage? One of two things has happened. I've not done anything wrong, or you have done something wrong. Either I'm sinless, or you're giving up your responsibility. That's how you get a dictator. That's how you get a pope. You let God handle it. 
You see, I've heard so often, if the pastor makes a mistake, don't worry about it. Just tell God, and God will tell the pastor. I don't know what chapter in the Bible it's in, because it must have been ripped out of mine. But what I read here is, one another. So great, pray to God, but you know how he's going to tell me? He's going to tell you. And then we're going to both look at the scripture and both to say, yep, I was wrong. There's no hierarchy in the church. People create hierarchies. The Bible doesn't. So let's fight against hierarchies. Sometimes you don't know a lot, but you know enough to see someone's wrong. The preacher can preach one thing and do another. You know that happens? And all you have to say is, hey, teacher, pastor, preacher, elder, you said this, but you did this. You said be peaceful, but you were divisive. You said be kind, but you were harsh. And if the preacher or the elder or the senior or whoever it is resists that, they're resisting the word of Christ. And what happens is a church then grows together. Everyone takes on the responsibility and no one's left out. And you grow spiritually. Ephesians 5 says, in a, in a very similar passage, do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Spiritual growth. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making melodies. Sounds very similar, doesn't it? Giving thanks. Verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Are you submitting to this church? That's what membership is. Membership is not sort of getting your name on the roll. It's submitting to the church. It's saying, teach me, correct me, and I'll do the same for you. So a good church member simply listens to the word and speaks it to the members and then allows correction to happen. Christ came to us, didn't he? Why won't you go to someone else? Jesus came to you. The Messiah came to us to teach and correct us. And now he calls you to go to someone else and do it. If you refuse to teach and correct other church members, you're saying, I'm glad Jesus did it for me, but I won't do it for anybody else. But a gospel-centered church says, I don't like correcting you, but I'm doing it because I love Jesus. I don't feel qualified to teach, but I love Jesus. And so we gather around the word. And then finally, the biggest expression of that is corporate worship. Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. When we gather as a church, we fulfill this command in the most explicit way possible. We're all together teaching, learning, singing. What should a church look like? It should look like this passage right here. What should a worship service look like? It should look like this passage right here. Spurgeon said, Satan hates Christian fellowship. It is his policy to keep Christians apart. The devil hates this. So he does everything he can to keep you out of this. Sometimes it's natural means. Sometimes you get sick. But sickness is corruption. Sickness is sin. Sometimes he puts things into your mind. Sometimes he tempts you away. But every time you miss this, you're missing a means of growth. It's not about doing what God says. It's about growing together to Christ. And, the, and Satan hates that. So he seeks to divide the body. He seeks to keep you out of worship so you won't grow. But we resist the devil by showing up on Sunday morning. The Bible says resist the devil and he'll flee from you. How does that work? You can't see the devil. It means showing up on Sunday morning at 11 o'clock, listening, teaching, praying, 
singing, it's an act of resistance. You subvert the devil and his kingdom. And it's all centered around what? The word. If the pastor doesn't preach the word, find another church. I know you may love people there and the pastor may be a great guy, but if he's not preaching the Bible, he's not helping you. If the songs aren't focused on what the Bible teaches, find another church. The word is how Christ comes to us. And the worship service is how we follow Christ in the word, which necessarily involves singing. Some of you may not be musical. Some of you may not be able to sing at all. And you're like, well, I'm not really a musical person. Every Christian is a musical person. Which means if you can't sing, ability must not be a requirement. Skill must not be required. Because it says here, singing to one another. Everybody's singing. God doesn't want you to sound good. He wants you to be singing. That's hard, I know. I'm up here at the stage. You know, I don't have a microphone. When you sing, you fulfill the command to teach and admonish one another. You fulfill the command to come together and unify. Bring peace. Nothing is more unifying than everyone singing together the same song. There's something powerful about music. So powerful that God requires it of Christians. Abraham Cho says, this is a gratitude that overflows your heart and causes you to sing. If you're not singing, do you have grace in your heart? Are you thankful? Cho says, gratitude that overflows your heart and causes you to sing. So often we think, well, I don't know the song, I don't know the words, I don't really feel like it, my throat hurts, I'm not a good singer. What about God? What about others? Singing to one another with grace in your heart to the Lord. A Christian worship service is a group of people who commit together, whose hearts are pointed at Jesus, and then they sing. What does Christian worship look like? People whose hearts are changed, singing together, listening to the word together. That's just, They don't have to be good. It doesn't have to be a style of music. It doesn't have to be a style of song. It doesn't have to be anything beautiful. It just has to be hearts that are changed, coming together to sing and worship God. If you do that, you will grow. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to be educated. You don't have to be young. You don't have to be old. All you have to do is say, I want to follow God. My heart wants God. The word shows me the way, and the people help me get there. That's it. Isn't it simple? So if you're a young person, and you're like, I don't have much to to contribute, all you have to do is find one other person, and you're fulfilling this. Maybe you're old, and you're like, I don't know if I can do anything anymore. I'm past my prime. Find one person, and tell them about Jesus in this church, and then sing the best you can. That's all that's required. You will always be a productive member of a church if you can talk and show up. Just be a Christian. You don't have to be a talented speaker. You don't have to be an organizer. You don't have to give a lot of money. You just have to show Christ to others. Just one person. Maybe you have social anxiety. Okay. Just find one person. Meet them privately. Sing in a group of people where no one's looking at you. That's Christianity. This is what it means to be a Christian, to take the name. Chrysostom said, By this name hath the world been converted. 
the tyranny dissolved, the devil trampled on, the heavens opened. We have been regenerated by this name. This, if we have, we beam forth. This name makes both martyrs and confessors. Take the name of Christ and then live it out. Let's pray.